welcome to the Military Child Education Coalition podcast, the show that illuminates a wide range of challenges and triumphs our military-connected kids experience. This episode was made possible thanks to the support from the Laughlin Spouses Club. On the show today, MSEC Sue Lopez discusses with adolescent therapist Samantha Seagreaves on the topic of self-harm and what parents need to know in order to help their children. So today I'd like to welcome my friend, Samantha Seagraves. She's also a military spouse and a mother. She's recently completing a master's in clinical psychology and working on her clinical practicum um, internship uh, to meet the requirements for licensure. Welcome, Sam. Thank you. So today our topic is going to be um, non-suicidal self Injury, NSSI is the acronym. And um, while uh, you've said to me before in previous conversations that more research is necessary in the relation to highly mobile military connected youth and other highly mobile youth, um, we're going to talk about some practical tips for military families, parents, and other youth serving professionals that work with our population of military connected students, like teachers or coaches or military family life counselors, um, and anyone in a school building or in a platform where they work with youth. So maybe if you could just define or clarify what non-suicidal self-injury is for our listeners, that would be a great place to start. Non-suicidal self-injury, also known as NSSI, is any type of destruction or alteration to the body that's outside of social norms. Um, so cutting is one of them, additional piercings, that type of things would be considered without the intention of suicide behind it is okay. an important aspect of that. It's a direct Maybe. and intentional alteration to the body. So typically what you see is cutting is mm -hmm. people think of it. Um, or you can see people that are punching the walls and they end up breaking their hands or something like that. They're harming themselves, but they have no intention of actually killing themselves. Okay. Do uh, substance abuses and eating disorders and other things go along with this as well? Is that another version of self-injury? So that's actually, they're connected in a, in a way. It's not uncommon to see with self-injury, um, there's usually something else going on. Depression and anxiety are pretty common co-occurrences, um, but you can also see eating disorders are pretty high with there um, and substance abuse. Typically what I see with the substance abuse is the same thing with the self-injury. It's a maladaptive attempt as a coping skill. Okay. So it might include things like picking at your skin or pulling out your hair, cutting yourself or other things like you said or maybe burning or biting, um, those types of things. Yes, burning is definitely one thing that I have seen. A kid will take a lighter and burn something and then burn their skin is kind of a common way that you, you'll see the burn injuries. Today, like the non-suicidal self-injury would be looking at the fact that when children are self-injuring or self-harming, they don't always have notion to harm themselves or in their lives, that it doesn't necessarily imply 
suicide ideation, even though people who do self-injure and self-harm are at a risk four times higher for suicide ideation. It's just uh, very important to show that they can exist without the suicide ideation. And then how see that distress in a child and how do you help them learn, like you said earlier, that help increase their ability to cope and manage their emotions. And so I would like to hear from you with the work that you've done. Would you say those who self-injure feel better maybe after they've done that just for a moment or to express their pain or to numb feelings? So can you explain like that moment and what it's like after they self-harm? Um, typically what I have heard is they feel better after they've harmed themselves. It's a kind of a physical release in a way. Um, so then, you know, and I'm sure that releases endorphins and dopamine in their mind and stuff. And so then it starts to, they start to associate, I'm stressed out, I'm depressed, I'm not feeling great about myself. And they go and they they sneak off. It's a very secretive behavior, typically. It's usually done in places that you're not going to see on an average day. So it's becomes a coping skill for them. So basically, they feel distressed about something. Let it be anxiety. Let it be depression. Let it be, I'm angry at my parents. I'm mad that we moved. I miss my friends. I'm on social media and my friends that I've just left are having this great time. And here I am in this new place and I don't have any friends and they decide maybe I'm going to try to hurt myself. And then they cut themselves and they feel a little bit better in that moment. And then that distress comes along again and then they do it again and then they do it again. And then it becomes this perpetual coping mechanism that by the time they realize that this is unhealthy, it's hard to go tell your parents that you've been doing this. Yes. Yeah. Like you said, it numbs the pain and it helps them regain a sense of, of control for the moment. Yes. With um, adolescents, everything in their life is, their whole development is about learning who they are as an individual. And so they're going to be looking at their peers, their peers um, they're going to look at their peers for cues on how to deal with stuff. They're not going to be going to their parents as much. And it's not uncommon for some maladaptive coping mechanisms to be picked up from other peers. Right. And then we hear parents say something along the lines of, you're acting different. It must have something to do with that outside influence in your life. Because we as parents, we know our children the best. We can identify those things easily. So. How does self-injury differ from suicide ideation? Uh, how would you help parents differentiate? Am I looking at self-injury without suicide ideation or am I seeing something more? That's a tough thing to say. I think it, it's serious enough that you want to find a clinician to help differentiate that. Even as a clinician, it's hard to figure out if someone's suicidal or not suicidal if they're wanting to hide it. So I, I recommend that parents reach out to professionals that are trained in it, but having a conversation with your child is where you're gonna get the best information from. 
And it can be very hard for a child to tell their parent what's going on. So how you approach it, like you cannot, you can't have a freak out moment as much as you want as a parent in that type of situation. But the question that I would tell a parent to ask is, hey, what's going on? You know, what's your motives behind it? Why are you doing this? Talking to your child and asking them. So as soon as you spot any type of self-injury, it's important to get moving on getting professional counseling for that child. Early intervention is is a critical thing. So definitely ask the hard questions, have the conversation with your child. Up front. Maybe normalize like check-ins and uh, oh, absolutely. notice something. What might those check-ins look like? Can you share some ideas of how parents can in- engage their children and in- encourage communication? Um, one thing that I have found effective is when the kids get in the car with me, we talk in the car. Put your phone down. Let's talk. Um, and that tends to be fairly decent. <laughs> you know, they can't run away. Um, <laughs> I, you know, go in their room and sit on the bed and talk to them. You know, I, I try to give my kids space um, and privacy. But if you're kind of avoiding me and you're playing on your video games all the time, I'm going to come hop in and play on the bed and start talking to you. You know, um, watch movies together. Go ask your child what they want to do. Kind of just normalize communication all together, which can be hard with teenagers, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Find out what they like. I found with working with teenagers, I give them something to kind of make fun of me <laughs> or teach me. Um, right. My kids know that I don't know anything about music, and so they love all teaching me about the music and stuff like that. So enjoy getting to know your child. Yeah. Learning how to express themselves. It could be through art, like you said, music, maybe writing, maybe co-journaling or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Anything to increase communication. If they if they don't want to look you in the eye and sit down, maybe there's a co-journaling or, you know, you could text one another uh, or come up with a, a safe word or a check-in word that means I need a little bit more from you right now. And I do appreciate you saying there are times and places where you're intentionally going to check in. It could be at the dinner table. It could be in the car to and from school or to and from practice of some sort. And so knowing that when you have those times to shut the rest of the world off and you're alone with your, your student, your children, that you're going to intentionally engage them. I think that's very important. So I really appreciate you sharing that, you know, with military children, what do parents need to know and consider during high stress times like a PCS or a deployment reintegration when it comes to non-suicidal self-injury? They are wiser beyond their years. They understand the stress of a move on the parents. Um, and majority of the time, it is not uncommon that they're struggling And when you go and you talk to them, you'll hear, oh, well, I didn't want to bother you with that. So during high stressful times, be more intentional with your actions with with your kids. Um, Make sure you make the time to say, you know, it's okay that you see mom struggling. You know, I'm struggling leaving my friends, but it's okay for you to come up and curl up with me and be like, I miss my friends too. Right, right. A little bit of humanity. 
in there because uh, we're going through it together. We're not separate from it. So I think that learning those keywords for one another, um, understanding the emotional intelligence aspect of communication and maybe even for our own selves as parents and then for our children, that understanding how we regain our self-control and our self-awareness and then how to um, emote and express ourselves that comes with practice. And so the intentional conversation that you're talking about is also very important and listening, truly listening to one another because it's through the regular check-ins and communication that we grow together and we share our lives with them. We share our lives, we share ourselves with our children and vice versa. And so identifying warning signs or triggers and then communication about warning signs and triggers for one another. We can support the family unit together. So um, what are some of the warning signs that you might identify for parents? Um, For self-harm or emotionally struggling? I would say for self-harm. Changing of the clothes, wearing baggier clothes, more concealing clothes, if that's um, out of their norm. So if you have a child that's always wearing shorts and now suddenly they're wearing baggy pants all the time and, and, you know, long sleeve sweatshirts and stuff. um, Yes, it could be a fashion change, but it could also be concealment of something. High uses of band-aids, as weird as it sounds, a lot of band-aid use. Okay. Changes in their sleeping patterns, their eating patterns, um, if they're isolating more, and that Mm -hmm. includes like with their friends. Those are some of the the big things that uh, I would look for. Um, If they're irritable more, you know, if they're just like you said, a parent knows their child the best. So if just something just seems off, that's your gut telling you something, you know? So if they're like snippier with you and they're usually not that type of child, that would be a warning sign. You know, if they're sleeping all the time and they've always been a kid who's up at the crack of dawn, that would be a warning sign or, you know, it could be a growth spurt, but you got to check in. Right. So when and if you ever did notice a sign of self-harm, I would say the best step is to be honest and step forward in a positive manner. Like you said, no freaking out, just calmly. I've noticed this about you lately. Do you want to tell me a little bit more about it? Or do you need to talk with someone else it, it's it's good to encourage like a step forward and a little bit of understanding and compassion because I think that goes uh, carries a lot of weight with adolescents when you try to level that playing field of communication with them. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. A lot of kids are going to clam up because they don't want to see their parent upset. And, you know, it's an upsetting thing. So I have found that when you when you're talking to an adolescent about speaking to a therapist, letting them know, hey, if you're worried about hurting me or me hearing things that you think are gonna hurt me, then maybe if we get you someone to talk to that's just for you, that you can openly talk to would benefit them. Giving them that permission that it's okay to talk to a trained professional it's better for it to be talked to with a trained professional than for my child to try to carry on with this heavy load. 
Does that make sense? It's the way that I approach it. Right. Some of the things that I've done in the past um, as well when I work with students are encourage them to to use some grounding methods like four, five, three, two, one, that grounding technique or some mindfulness breathing strategies. Also, you know, physical activity is always good. Some art therapy or journaling as well, expressing themselves through maybe using henna tattoo, right? Doing something yep. creative with henna would be as an alternative. Also using a piece of ice to like draw on that part of the skin that they would think about self-harming, but to replace it with an ice cube or maybe there's some old newspapers around and old uh, magazines or something that they can just shred up and tear apart. But I think what's important is that we tell our children that we're concerned, that we identify and we see something um, and that we're concerned and approach them out of a conversation to encourage more and, you know, not to lecture, not to accuse or threaten or freak out on, on the other side, but in a very calm, open tone of voice, you know, work with them to understand, let them know that you're trying to understand where they're coming from and to reassure them that I'm not going to punish you for your behavior, but I'm deeply concerned. How can I help you? How can I help share this burden with you? Because we as parents want to do anything we can to help our children through these, these hard times. And so and I do believe that that would end with a conversation of getting professional help, you know? Absolutely. I mean, even in the field that I'm in, you know, it's, we would go seek help for sure. I could not take on my own child and help them through this. We would have to go seek someone else. And kind of one way that I look at it for, for the spouses out there that are working in the mental health field, I look at it as child of a teacher can still have a learning disability, right? And mm -hmm. it doesn't make you less of a teacher. It's just your unique little person, you know, your child, their unique, their own struggles. Um, but you wouldn't stop your child getting a reading specialist. And I feel like with mental health, sometimes there's a shame that I have failed as a parent or I did not do enough as a parent that can make it that we don't seek outside resources. And I just want to reassure that no one in the field thinks that. It mm -hmm. is very courageous for children and parents to come in and to seek help. And it's probably one of the best investments that you'll make for your child. Right. Do you have any resources that you would like to share that you feel a parents would benefit from immediately if they do notice self-harming behaviors? Are there any resources that you recommend they can go and find information in it and help? Yes. Well, the first thing is if you're concerned, you can call 988, which is the 911 for mental health. If you are concerned for the safety of your child. So that is, that's one of the first ones. There's also local crisis numbers that you can look up in your area. Um, every county has them. Um, and usually you can find those resources also at the base hospitals, have a list of them. But I like when trying to find a new provider, 
I love going on to psychology today, there is a child and adolescent section and it will pull up a list of providers. And then you can see the criteria that they have on um, their certification if they work with eating disorders or if you know they can work with anxiety, that type of stuff. And then also military one source can help you, especially for our families that are overseas. They're really good at helping find mental health counselors for overseas families. Thank you for your time today and sharing your lessons learned and practical tips for military connected families and parents. I'd like to um, just say that it's always better to err on the side of caution and to evaluate for risk if you're concerned about your student, but then also to increase your family communication and, and identify triggers. And if you do have an identified concern, coming up with an action plan for your family is also very important. We will put in our show notes a list of suggestions and resources that uh, Samantha provided to us today, and we'll add a few more. Um, we'd also like to highlight the Military Child Wellbeing Toolkit, the Strengthening Your Family Communication, and the Emotional Intelligence tab, as well as the Mindfulness and Wellbeing. There are many activities that families can use to engage communication. There's videos and other resources, and the end goal is to increase family communication. So. We encourage you to use those tools and resources. And so, Sam, I'd just like to say thank you for joining us. Is there anything else that you want to share? Um, any final thoughts that you want to leave with our listeners today? I just recommend for everybody to get out there and just try different things. Um, it's going to look different for each family with uh, each relationship that you have with a child. And what works for your family is what works. So try all the skills out there. It's definitely good advice. Thank you so much for your time and, and sharing your wealth of information with us and encouraging families to have the hard conversations and to keep the communication going. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the MSEC podcast, the official podcast of the Military Child Education Coalition. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and subscribe. And don't forget to leave us a comment to let us know the topics that you want to hear more about. We'd like to give a special thanks again to the Laughlin Spouses Club for supporting this episode, and we hope you will too by giving today's show a five-star rating. For more information about MSEC's programs, go to www.militarychild.org. I'm Susan Sellers, and until next time, live a great story.